we say thank you to the choir and team again? Didn't they just do a great job leading us this morning? So thankful for them. Listen, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, still kind of in a multi-year walk through the Gospel of Matthew, in a little mini-series called End Times, where Jesus has been talking through what's going to happen during the end times. Now, uh, maybe you're like me, and your wife has given you a list of things, of suggestions for you to do. Uh, before she comes back or just at the house. This happens. We, we might call them honeydews or uh, just strong recommendations from your spouse. Well, I get those. And uh, there's ever the occasion that I've been given one, and I find myself uh, uh, sitting maybe on the couch quicker than she might anticipate how long that task should take me in any given point. And so I'm sitting on the couch, and, and preemptively I try to give an answer to her before she's ever asked the question. So let's say that she's given me a list of suggestions that I should accomplish on that Friday or Saturday, and I'm finding myself sitting on the couch, and I see her walk by, and I'll say, I already unloaded the dishes. She hadn't asked. She hadn't said anything, but you know the question's coming. Are you following me here? Or or maybe you say, no, 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 I I already mowed the lawn, right? I've already done it. Like, don't even ask. I've, I've accomplished the task that you've given me to do. We call this kind of a answering the unasked question. Answering the unasked question. He said, what does that have to do with Matthew chapter 24? Jesus has been preaching this on the Mount of Olives. And he's been sharing about what's happening at the end times. And in the midst of all of that, certainly you can imagine the disciples are beginning to ask some questions even internally. And Jesus is going to come out of the gate and he's going to answer a question that hasn't been asked verbally, but it certainly is on their minds. Jesus is going to come out and answer a question that hasn't been asked, but certainly it's going to be on their minds. And, and the anticipation of his answer should not cause us to shrink back, but it should cause us to fervently obey the Lord. So the goal today is that we might see the coming of the Lord and and fervently obey the things that he's told us to do rather than shrink back in fear or frustration. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36. Just read a few verses. We're going to get all the way through portion of chapter 25, so buckle up, all right? So if you have your Bibles and you're there, Matthew 24, 36, will you say word? Watch this. This is, I, you, this is the lead-in. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah's were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Verse 40, when two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known that what time the thief was coming, if he had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Our first point this morning is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. We don't need to worry, but we do need to be ready. Jesus has answered a question that wasn't asked, 
by the disciples simply when the coming was his, when his coming would happen. And he says to us very clearly, no one knows. Now this should be comforting to us that we no longer have to decode the Bible. We no longer have to pull out our charts and determine or even estimate when that second coming is happening. Because Jesus makes very clear in this passage, verse 36, no one knows except the Father. Now notice he says, no one knows. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus is God and he is also man. And so you may begin to think, man, well, how long is Jesus going to linger? How long will it be until he returns? Maybe you've asked that question when you've gone to a movie with your children and you're sitting there during the movie thinking, I paid to be tortured through this movie. When will it be over? Or maybe, just maybe, you're on a a date with somebody and you're looking across the table going, when will this date be over? Don't look at anybody, please don't. Or maybe, just maybe, you're sitting through a sermon thinking, when will this be over, right? You might be thinking that about Jesus. Like, when will this happen? When will his return come? And Jesus gives us an answer. He says, no one knows except the Father. Now, this gets really confusing for us because Jesus being fully God, shouldn't, shouldn't Jesus, who is fully God, know everything? And shouldn't Jesus, of all people, since it's his coming, like, he would need to know when he's going to return? Well, this becomes a Trinitarian question for us. Now, I want to do a little bit of teaching just briefly because it'd be easy for us to de emphasize the humanity of Jesus and overemphasize the deity of Jesus, or we might over or de emphasize the deity of Jesus and overemphasize the humanity of Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus wasn't 50% man and 50% God, He was 100% God and 100% man, and this is critical for you to understand. In fact, uh, you might think, well, how can we describe this? And there's lots of images and pictures that you might think of to describe how the Trinity works. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And many of us have used these kinds of illustrations in the past, but I just want to warn you that some of the ways in which we have used to describe the Trinity has actually been condemned as heresy. For example, you might say, "Well, well, you're a father and you're also a son, but you're also a husband. That's the image of the Trinity. And I would tell you, no, that's actually not an image of the Trinity. You might say the image of the Trinity is like water and gas and ice. And that's kind of an image of the Trinity. And I would say, no, I think that image is actually short-sighted as well. Or you might say the Trinity is like an apple. It's got the skin and then it has the, the flesh, if you will. Which now whenever you eat an apple, you're thinking, I'm eating flesh. And then you've got the core. But I would say to you that I think fails to illustrate the Trinity. I think Augustine really helped us understand the image of the Trinity. I just want to show it to you because it helps us understand what's happening here. You have God who is one, but he has revealed himself as three persons. He is, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And here's how this works out. They have kind of roles, but they are distinct persons because the Father, 
who originates salvation. He's the one who planned it out. Jesus is the one who accomplishes it, but it's the Spirit who provides conviction and security for the believer. So you see how the Trinity even works within salvation. The Father's the one who ordains it. He's the one who allows it even to be a possibility. The Son is the one who has accomplished the opportunity for you to be saved, and it's the Spirit who convicts you and then seals you when you believe. The Trinity is at work. And here we have this understanding that Jesus somehow is fully God, but fully man. One professor, one professor in seminary, Roy Fish, he, he said that the incarnation is like putting meat in your queso. It's the flesh, the meat is in there in that good, gooey cheese sauce. The reality is that Jesus here. He has limited himself to one degree. Look at Philippians chapter 2. I want to show you this verse. This is a Christological hymn, something that you should think about. He says, adopt the same attitude as that as Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality of God as something to be grasped or to be exploited. Rather, he emptied himself. You see this? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, becoming man, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. What is all this trying to get at? I'm trying to show you that Jesus, although he was fully God, when he came to earth, there are some limitations that were put on him by him. He humbled himself to the point of obedience, even death on a cross. You say, well, so are you telling me there's, that Jesus is fully God, but he didn't know the future? He didn't know when he was going to return. He purposely limited himself. Just think about it this way. God, who is one, is omnipresent. There's not one place that God is not. However, when Jesus was on earth, he was limited to that time and that space. God, on the other end, is not limited by time or limited by space. But in that moment, the incarnation, Jesus is in time and in space. So Jesus experienced the temptations that you and I face. Jesus experienced even some of the temptations to give in to the struggles that you and I struggle with. And yet he did not sin. See, there are those that would say Jesus is so human that he understands what you're walking through and even, even sinned just like you. That is heretical to say. For if Jesus had sinned, he could not be the perfect sacrifice for you on the cross. See, God created us. God created us out of love. And because he loved us, he created us to be holy and righteous before him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they decided to do their own thing. They wanted to find truth and knowledge outside of God. They took the fruit and they ate of it, and in the essence, they sinned, and that sin then, therefore, has been passed down to us, and, and I would say things aren't steadily improving, but things are steadily in decline. God, who is holy, cannot have anything unrighteous in his presence, and yet he understands that we are now, because of our sin, unrighteous before him and unholy. The only way for us to be made repaired and made right with God is that somebody has to go in our place who never failed, who never sinned so that we could become righteous before the Heavenly Father. And so Jesus was sent by the Father. The Son comes and He obeys even to the point of death, death on a cross. And Jesus, by giving His life in our place, when we receive Him as Lord, we then can be made whole and right before the Heavenly Father. We have to be ready 
Jesus emptied himself, so there were some things that Jesus did not know. Jesus could not be omnipresent while he was on earth. And Jesus did this. Jesus did this purposely so that we would understand that he was tempted just like us, and yet he did not sin. So that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And so you see here, Jesus says, after no one knows the days or the hour, he gives an illustration. He gives several illustrations in this text, maybe even parables, if you will. And he talks about Noah. He says, just like the days of Noah, he's, again, he's describing when he returns, it'll be like when the days of Noah were coming, of the Son of Man will be, for in the days like when the flood, they were, they were eating and drinking and marrying and getting away, giving away from marriage. They were going through the ordinary practices of their day. And in the process, Jesus says it'll be just like the days of Noah. Now, we love to paint uh, Noah murals on our preschool, uh, maybe walls, or maybe we have toys that illustrate, or even, even uh, ornaments that describe Noah's ark. And it, it is a wonderful story of God's redemption, but it's also a terrifying story of God's wrath. It's a wonderful story of God's redemption, but it's also a terrifying story of God's wrath. Because not only were all the animals on that boat, and not only were Noah and his family on that boat, but there were countless and untold hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who were under the wrath of God as the floodwaters, which I believe spanned over the entire earth, rose. See, Noah was given some instructions, and I think part of the illustration of Noah is that God, was, God gave Noah some instructions, and Noah obeyed those instructions, and then everybody was going about their own business, a little apathetic, maybe even mocking Noah, and in the process, Noah did what he was asked to do. He accomplished the task. He then gets on the boat, and while everybody was just going along with their business, the rains began to fall, and the judgment of God began to rise up. Jesus tells them that when he returns, it'll be similar to this. People will be going about their ordinary days, eating and drinking and marrying and giving away for marriage, not paying attention to the signs that are clearly being observed, and that's when he'll return. In the same way, he talks about two men on a hill, then he talks about women who are grinding grain with a handmill. but he tells them in verse 42, do you see it in verse 42, he says, don't you know you need to, therefore, be alert or be ready? This should give you encouragement. That whatever you're facing in the day, you should be, be, be readying yourself for the return of the Lord. Readying yourself for the, the time that he has come. In fact, he's, he'll say in verse 44 that we need to be ready. He gives an illustration of a man, right before this, of a man who, who knows that he's going to be robbed at his home. And if he knows he's going to be robbed, he doesn't just leave the front door unlocked. He doesn't turn off the security cameras. He, he actually readies himself to defend his house. I, I think many of us, many of us aren't ready. We're busy doing other things. Good things, but not doing Godward things. We're busy doing things that aren't bad or evil or vindictive, but they're not the best things, the Godward things. We're so easily entertained and, and genuinely so easily distracted to the point to where 
we're not doing the main things, the Godward things. He says in 42, be alert. He says in 44, be ready. Be ready. But secondly, he begins in verse 45. Look at verse 45. He says, who then is faithful and wise? Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if, they, if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed, and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, that servant's master's master excuse me, will come on a day he does not expect him at an hour he does not know. Now watch this. He will be cut. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master obviously is the heavenly father and the servant is supposed to be the the one who's in service unto the master. So this is supposed to be a, a picture of what it's like to be a follower of Christ. And yet we see here where the servant, because the master he thinks is delayed... He begins to mistreat those around him, and then he just gives, him, gives way to gluttony and drunkenness. We're not only to be ready, but we're also to be faithful and wise. In the end times, we're not just to be ready, we're also to be faithful and wise. And he gives a picture of a wicked servant, an unwise Servant, And notice what he says in verse 45 or 46. He puts somebody in charge. Look at verse 46. He says, blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing his job. Who is the faithful servant? The faithful servant is the one that the Lord, when he returns, finds him doing his job. The wicked servant is the one who is not doing the job that's been assigned to him. This begs for us then, I want to be found as a faithful and wise servant, don't you? I want to be found faithful and wise. If that's the case, then what does it mean to be faithful and wise in God's economy? What does it mean to be faithful and wise in the kingdom of God? Because if that's the case, I want to do all that I can to be found faithful and to be found wise. I think there's three little things that I, that I think maybe help us think about what it means to be faithful and wise in God's kingdom. And I think the first one is time. Time. How are we spending our time? Are we spending our time on kingdom purposes or our kingdom purposes? Are we giving ourselves to his kingdom and his work or are we consumed with our work and our little kingdoms? Self-denial is one of the strongholds in the Western church. We don't want to deny self. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We want to spend our time the way we want to spend it. And I think you have, you do not have enough time to do all the things you really want to do, but you do have enough time to do all the things God has called you to do. What we do in our life is that we'll create this thing called a bucket list. It's okay to have a bucket list. I'm not offended if you have a bucket list. But the problem with a bucket list is that once you go through your list, apparently that's when you kick the bucket. So I don't make a list, so I never complete it, right? But we make this list of all the things we want to do or see, and we make plans. We want to travel here or go there or 
jump out of an airplane with a parachute, all these kinds of things that we make. And I'm not against a bucket list, but friends, we will all, all of us have to give an account for how we spent the time we've been given. Oh, to be found faithful, to have been spending our time on kingdom purposes. I think that's the faithful and wise servant. Not just our time, these are things you've heard before, but, but also our talents. You know, each one of you have a, has a gift that the Lord has given you. And you'll have to give an account for how you use that talent. Now, I'm not just talking about, oh, he has a singing ability or, or he has a, a skill that nobody else has. I'm just thinking the things that you have been given, are you using those in service unto the Lord? Are you exercising those things within the body of Christ? There are some in the body that are the mouth. There are some in the body that are the feet and the hands, the heart. Are you exercising those things to the glory of God? Are you using the talents God has given you for his name's renown? I think also our treasure, the finances that we've been given, the possessions we've been given by God's benevolent grace. All that you have is a gift from above. And are you using it for the glory of the Lord or are we using it on ourselves? And so often my tendency is to use the treasures that God has given me on, on me, on me. But the one who's found doing his job, and I'm not talking about just going to your eight to five day work, because listen, sometimes you don't want to go to work. Have you ever, you ever not wanted to go to work? You said, man, I'm not, I guess I'm not feeling well today. I'm going to call in sick. But the faithful and wise servant is the one whom when God comes back, he is found doing with his time and using his talents and taking his treasure and and multiplying them for kingdom purposes. That's the one who's found faithful. But the wicked servant, the one who who has not spent well his time, talents, or treasures, look what happens in verse 51. He is is cut into pieces. This, This is not PG. This isn't even PG-13. I mean, this is the wrath of God coming upon somebody who was given time and given talents and given treasures that was not found faithful to the Lord. The Lord says his wrath then is going to be on that person. They will be cut up into pieces. They will be sent to where the hypocrites are sent, where there is the gnashing, there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is what we've understood as a snapshot, a little peer into what hell will be like for those who are found unfaithful. Now listen, friend, you're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by, well, I use every moment. Because he's going to illustrate in just a second that you're not saved by your works. But I'm telling you, you are going to have to respond and give and bear witness to how you use what God has given you. So we must be found faithful and wise. But also we must be prepared. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. He gives another illustration, a parable, if you will, these ten virgins. He said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven was like the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them, but the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. 
When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep in the middle of the night. There was a shout, here's the groom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and, and for you. Go, go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came out and said, Master, Master, open for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you're, you don't know either the day or the hour. Now, again, Jesus is giving a parable. He's giving us a, an illustration of what it means to be prepared that's really our third point is be, be prepared. If we're to be ready and we're to be faithful and wise, we're also to be prepared. Now, in this story, a virgin was simply like a, a bridesmaid. It very well could have been a, an individual who had, had not, was not married, but it was like a bridal party. And in those days, the, a wedding was a great feast and an exciting time. And, and, and just picture with me, like in our, in our modern day weddings, sometimes we'll have the actual wedding and then we'll go to a reception and, and sometimes you're waiting for the groom and the bride to come after some photos and it can feel like a long time. So this group was sectioned off to kind of keep the party going and have their lamps ready so that whenever the bride and the groom arrived, they were, they were there to celebrate and extend that party into the banqueting hall so everyone could feast. It's in this moment where there were some in that group who, who knew what was at stake, did not know how long it would be, but they did not go in prepared. They went in with, with not enough oil, not enough to, to last the night, and then there was another group that did it. They were prepared. They had the oil ready. They were ready for a, the long haul. They were rationing it out. They were, they were making sure it was measured correctly, and so in our modern day, we, we don't really use lamps like this. We might have batteries instead. So you got one group that didn't have enough batteries, and you got another group that had enough batteries. But in the process, the groom arrives, and it takes those who are not prepared by shock. And so they asked to borrow some, and the other group said, no, we won't even have enough if you borrow some from us. You need to go buy some more. And so they leave to go, and then a the most dreadful thing happens at the end of the parable. Do you see it? Those that were not prepared come to the groom, and he he basically says to them very clearly, I don't know you. It's so offensive to have been asked to be part of this bride, bridal party and yet to not be prepared. And so they come and he says, listen, those that are truly part of our bridal party, those are the ones that came prepared. And those who are not part of the bridal party, they, I don't know you. It draws for us the image of what happens all the way back in Matthew chapter 7. I know Matthew 7 was some time ago for us, but Matthew chapter 7, you have this moment where there's these individuals who have been ministering unto the Lord, they've been doing the work of the Lord, and at the end of all days, they come before the presence of the Lord, and the Lord looks at them and he says, I know you preached, I know you did and, and performed miracles, and yet when I look at you, I Never knew you. He looks at them and he says, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. You're not, you're not part of our bridal party. You're not part of the celebration because there was never a relationship established. How many of us have gotten so consumed 
with doing the activities of God, we've forgotten the heart of God. How many of us have gotten so eager to do all the, the things that are before us, and yet we fail to actually sit with the Lord? It's amazing to me. He says, you are not prepared. And so he, he reminds him in verse 13. He reminds him in verse 13. He just says, hey, be alert. Be prepared. It's the same thing he said earlier in the passage in, in chapter 24. You've got to be ready. You've got to be alert. Why? Because you don't know either the day or the hour. Now, how much time is left? I, I don't know. When, when is the second coming of the Lord? I don't know. We're in an inter-advent season. Inter-advent season. You understand Advent. Advent's when we walk, when the birth of Christ comes. That was the first Advent. The second Advent is when Christ returns. We don't know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows. Oh, may we be ready. May we be faithful and wise. And may we be prepared. That lands a couple of ways, I think, for us. On one hand, I think that there's some in this room that if you were to try to come to the groom, he would say, I don't know you. The Lord can give you the security that you need. Not because you've done all the right things. Not that you went through some checklist of your time, your talents, and your treasures. But instead, because the Holy Spirit who seals us in Christ, confirms it in your heart. The, we call that the inner witness of your heart. But some of you don't have that because you've never actually trusted in Christ. You thought that you could just kind of go through the motions just like those five virgins who did not prepare. You thought if you just kind of showed up that maybe he'll like let you slip in even though he never knew you. So for some of you in this room, it's, it's time for you to settle that you know him. And I think for others of us in this room, I, I think there's a degree of which we've, we've walked this walk, but maybe there's some areas where we've not, we've not been faithfully obedient. We've not been denying self. We've been indulging the self. We, we've not been thinking, how can I live and leverage my life for Christ? I've been thinking, how can I live and leverage my fame for my name? Jesus tells us, nobody knows the hour. I don't know when it's going to be. But he gives us a picture of Noah that we'll be going about our ordinary business. Eating and drinking, marrying and getting married. But eventually Noah gets on that boat. And all those who were not part of Noah's family were set for destruction. And the sad reality is that one day when Christ returns... All those who were not part of his family will be set for destruction. Do you know Christ? Are you faithfully obeying all that you know to obey in these days? For nobody knows the day or the hour. Father, we come and we thank you for the chance to open your word. But Lord, we know that there's a mixture of how do we... How do we know that we can know? And Lord, we believe that your Holy Spirit can give that confirmation. And so Lord, we're asking, Spirit, Spirit, would you right now, with that inner witness inside of us, bring confirmation of who you are in us? 
Spirit, if there's somebody in this room that has not trusted you, does not have that confirmation that they would have the, the courage and humility to step out and say, I want to I trust in Christ today. We suppress your movement, Lord, when we refuse to submit. And Lord, for others of us in this room, there's this sense of some things that we need to course correct because we just become lax when it comes to following you. We're coming under conviction for that, but Lord, would you help us to repent, to receive your forgiveness, to be reconciled to you, and to respond in obedience. We thank you, Lord, for this chance. In Christ's name, amen. If you're